Hello and shalom, shalom. Welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Dvarim, that is Deuteronomy. Uh, I was really looking forward to getting into this new section of the book beginning with chapter 19 because with it we will be brought into the law of God, the Mosaic law, which is very humane, compassionate, and a kind law. <clears throat> it regulates man in uh, and his own rules and brings everyone to an equal footing, even on a pedestal. For after looking at the details, one will realize how important is every single person in our Creator's eyes. After this, the words of Yeshua will resonate. Words like, love your neighbor as yourself, or even love your enemies. These would then make more sense. So the Mosaic Law reflects God's character and His will, and so it is my prayer that we will all be blessed by these precepts of freedom and liberty. And before we begin, as we usually do, let us take an important question about prayer. When it comes to believers and prayer, one thing that we are taught is that our prayers should be a personal petition before God. This brings to mind the Lord's Prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. Yeshua said we were to pray like this. Does it mean that this prayer should be memorized or recited daily? And if not, what instruction or purpose does this prayer serve? Uh, This is a very important question. What purpose do these words serve? First, if you want to pray this prayer as is, it is a good thing. However, it was not necessarily meant to be prayed this way. The title itself, the Lord's Prayer, is a loose term. If you want to see the Lord's Prayer, uh, the one that he himself prayed, then read John chapter 17. It, it is This is a moving prayer of Yeshua. However, the one in Matthew 6 is like a pocket edition or, on, on how our prayer should be. The opening words give, give us the purpose of the prayer. The Greek begins with the words, in this manner. A- and what follows is the model, the example to follow each step by the way, it speaks volume. Let's briefly recognize the steps. The prayer really begins with the words, Our Father in Heaven. Right away, uh, through these words, Yeshua solved a- a- an old, long problem of our perception of God as being so far away, inaccessible. But he, here he addresses the God of Heaven as Our Father. In Greek, it's Pater. This is the way a child called his father. Pater is like uh, calling God Abba or even Daddy. This is the beginning of prayer, getting close to God, our Abba. And when you realize this, you say, Hallowed be your name. Then, because we recognize more than the existence, but His presence in our lives, we then say, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By saying these things, we also recognize the many prophecies and promises of His soon coming and of His future kingdom. And through the next verse, verse 11, the worshiper emphasizes the sovereignty of God in his own personal life by saying, give us this day our daily bread. Here we see the active presence of God in our lives. This is the moment we can dedicate what we possess and recognize that it is all from him. Then the prayer turns to our relationship with others, beginning with 
forgiveness, forgiveness, moving from our physical needs to our spiritual daily needs in verse 12. We read, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is a powerful saying. First, if we ask for forgiveness, it is because we recognize that we are sinners. This is when repentance, confession of sin should be offered. This should be done every day. And Daily, the Spirit will reveal to us things that we need to change in our lives and so that we can have greater joy. <clears throat> and notice the second clause. We ask the Lord to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. To forgive then is the mark of a believer. This is important to the Lord. He does not let it, let it go so easily knowing that it may become a big problem. He brings it back at the end, after really the prayer, in verse 14 and 15. This is what he says. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See first that now the focus is on the individual. He goes from the plural to the singular before it was our father, our deliberate, our debts. Now it is you who forgive and you who may not forgive. So what are we to understand by these words? First, what the verse does not say is that God's forgiveness towards us depends on whether we forgive our neighbor or not. As far as we're concerned, we have been forgiven. This is our permanent spiritual condition. This forgiveness is not based on any work that we've done or that we're doing, but on His grace. And so the natural outcome from the believer, for the believer that is, or from the believer, is that also forgiveness. All believers should forgive. However, if Jesus' statement sounds quite harsh, it is perhaps because not all believers forgive. Many are taking too much time to do it. Others still harbor hard feelings because they have not yet forgiven. But this is inconsistent with God's plan. And unfortunately, it is too common. If there is much emphasis on forgiveness here on the, in this pattern of prayer, it is surely because when there is no forgiveness, there is no spiritual growth, and one cannot really or truthfully say, my Father in heaven. Perhaps these words are here to alert us of this deep-seated problem. These verses should bring us to pray and, and make a balance sheet uh, of all the, the people we have hurt and those who have hurt us and pray for them by name. And back to the prayer itself. It ends really in verse 13. It says, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen and do not lead us into temptation we know that god does not lead us into this type of temptation as james tells us in james 1 13 let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted of god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone so then what does it mean when it is written and do not lead us into temptation Perhaps this refers to those difficult times of trial when we call on God, when He allows this time to come our ways, that is to refine us, to refine us. Do not lead us to temptation amongst to ask God to expose all these sins and those, these hindrances 
of our to our spiritual growth. And when there is temptation, the evil one, notice, is mentioned. There is an article before the word evil, often untranslated. It is the evil one. No, we're not in heaven now. Many, uh, uh, and now the majority in the churches believe that Satan is bound, by the way. But he is very active. He is the ruler of this world, as we learn in John 14, 30. He is the prince of power of the earth, Ephesians 2, 2. And we are asked to pray for protection from him. Now, th- th- there is one more thing I, w- I want to bring out, which stands out in this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. We can recognize some words that are repeated, which ha- will help us actually uh, to-, to understand the direction of prayer and also forgiveness. Uh, one word is the word secret, secret. As in your father who is in the secret place is repeated for each of the three subjects in the Sermon of the Mount here, prayer, fasting, and giving. This word is repeated six times in this chapter, and it has nothing to do with something secretive, but more personal. And this word is used to emphasize this close relationship each believer should have with God through prayer. Another word is reward. This one is repeated seven times in this chapter, as in your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. We are not looking for payment, but the teaching here is that these rewards are stored up day after day, as if the believer is right now investing in the afterlife. This is a point Yeshua stresses uh, here. And there is another word, heaven. Heaven, it is the, 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 the word repeated five times in there, uh, our Father in heaven, or lay up your, your, yourself, your treasures in heaven. And heaven is our eternal home. This is where we're going. In so many ways, you know, uh, this section speaks directly, of course, to us. And it is my prayer that through it, we're able to, to gauge our relationship with our God and follow the Messiah's instructions so that we can further grow in our spiritual uh, journey. Let us now move into our study of Deuteronomy. We're entering chapter 19. We are on page 17 of your handout that you can always download from our website. After chapter 18, where the Israelites were told about the prophet to come, who is the Messiah, here in chapter 19, the law is resumed. Here Moses goes right on to expound the sixth commandment You shall not murder. And he does it, I want to tell you, in such a beautiful way. He does not begin with laws to show us how to catch a murderer or how to punish a murderer, but he begins with a concern about the one who accidentally kills. Murder is a great tragedy. We all know that one who commits it also must be punished. But because we do not live in paradise again, we still live in an imperfect world where accidents happen all the time and where a situation can turn into a terrible tragedy. As for the killing of an individual, God here formulates a law to protect the person who has accidentally committed this crime. This is actually how it begins. Here, and one more time, the subject of the cities of refuge is brought back. We have looked at these cities in our second study of Deuteronomy, chapter 2, uh, as they are also mentioned there. To briefly sum up the reason or the, for the existence of the city of refuge, 
it was for the protection of the innocent as well as the protection of actually the criminal. Until the trial will determine whether an individual was or not responsible for the crime, the law protected them both from abuse. This is when the state took over any kind of judgment and punishment because the Mosaic Law refrained man to take the law into his own hands. It was no more a matter of personal revenge. In order to determine this, the accused was led to one of the cities of refuge, the closest one, in order to protect him from family or friends of the victim until a trial took place. As you can see in the map, there are six cities of refuge, three on each side of the Jordan River. These were also Levitical cities, and each had a name, even a comforting name. Let me just translate this name for you as I mentioned them. Sanctified, New Life, Fellowship, Exile, Height, Strong. These are inviting names of cities where the innocent could find shelter. They were designed actually for him. And here in chapter 9, some more information is given. Let us begin with something else quite revealing that we're told in chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. See what it says. Now, if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves beside these three. Uh, these I want to tell you are important words. What Moses is actually saying here is that there were to be Three more cities added, making a total of nine. But we find only six of them, which implies that their territory did not increase as the verse stipulates. The condition for the implementation of these three additional cities mentioned here is seen in verse 9. If you keep all the commandments and do them. What that tells us one more time is that they missed, on, uh, they missed out on great opportunities of blessings because they did not follow the word of God. Israel would not have been the same then, even today, if she had pursued God's teaching. This we, we, we have seen from the very beginning of Deuteronomy when the Lord told them to take the land from the rivers of the river of Egypt up to the Euphrates. But they ended up having such a small piece of land. And it speaks right to our heart as well. How many blessings have we missed out because we don't you know, follow the word of God? How many more cities we would have had? Where would our own ministry or our knowledge of God now be? And if this information of missed opportunity is given to us in chapter 19, verse 9, it's not for us to feel bad about Israel's lost opportunities or our own opportunities, but rather it is to tell us that we can turn the tide around. We can begin a new life in the Messiah even right now, right from this very moment. This, I believe, is the message uh, of this important uh, piece of information that we have. And there's something else. We are told in this chapter how were actually the judges were going to assess or decide if the person was guilty or not. Here the scriptures give us 
one more element we can use actually for every other situation. And in judging the case, there are three verses in Deuteronomy 19, the same chapter, verses 4, 6, and 11, which were to direct the judges on how they were to carry through with this matter. Let's read these passages. And this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. And from Deuteronomy 19.6, Lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. And from verse 11, If anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, and strikes him mortally, so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities. What is the <coughs> common denominator in all these three verses? It is the word hate, sani in Hebrew, which is an intense and sustained anger. It's all also translated for the word enemy. This is when forgiveness fails and hatred takes over. What the scripture says, if there is hatred, then the person was most likely not innocent but guilty. And it is this very hatred that Yeshua himself tells us is at the root of murder. On the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5.21, he explains the evolution of hatred to murder. Anger, hatred to murder. This is what he says. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, how could Yeshua speak, speak out such an important commandment, you shall not murder, and tie it together with anger? Something we're often uh, much less concerned about. The point here is that murder begins with anger, leading to hatred, leading to murder. This is why we ought to remove these feelings of anger from ourselves. With time, angry feelings grow and grow to the point that the person loses all respect and consideration for that individual. And then once hatred settles in, the feelings of murder comes naturally, really. Here Yeshua wants to catch the sin at its formation at its commencement, because at the end, when sin is committed, any sin, it has behind it a long trail of history. It is not true that we can fall into sin just like that. Sin is for the most part premeditated, and if we understand this point, sin will not surprise us anymore. Even the un an intentional sin still reflects to some degree the unrest that is kept at the low boil in our hearts. So we have to make sure that no bad thoughts are kept lingering in our mind. Let us now go back to Deuteronomy. This is when I want to bring you right to verse 21, where we find this important principle that one has often been misquoted or misunderstood the concept in, of the eye for an eye. It is related to hatred, to anger, and to murder. 
Lately, we have spoken about it through our studies on Leviticus, but let us see how it is presented here in Deuteronomy 19. See how verse 21 begins. Your eye shall not pity. Life be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Again, uh, at first reading, what might be brought to think of this law as archaic, that is unfair. But the, 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 the direction of this law is actually opposite. It was given in contrast to the current law of the time, the law of Amurabi, the oldest code of law in the world that is recognized as the oldest, that is dated around 2200 BC. We see many traces of this law in the Bible before the Mosaic law was given. This law originates in ancient Babylon. It was enacted by the sixth Babylonian king, Hammurabi. And there was another law that prevailed at the time as well, the law of Eshnuna, uh, dating back to around 1900 BC in Babylon as well. These laws were prevalent again before the Mosaic law in Israel. So these laws reflect man's rule, and this is what the Mosaic law came to change. The problem is that the punishment contained in these laws far exceeded the crime. And at times, the punishments were completely unrelated. This is why the eye for an eye was formulated to balance the law and make the punishment fit the crime so that there was no more room for abuse. The uniqueness of the Mosaic law lies in that man is brought back to be one who is created in the image of God. It limits the damages. Here, man is raised to a respectable being. The eye for an eye is a model for monetary compensation, as we see it in the scriptures, not physical comp compensation as it was then. If the Mosaic law, man, is now seen as a respected being, creating the image of God, <coughs> it is actually a human law. And this becomes obvious when one compares both God's law and man's law, that is, these other laws. For example, in the Mosaic law, when one is caught stealing, he is asked to restore double. This we see in Exodus 22.9. Yet the punishment in the Hammurabi law was physical. Either his hand was cut off or the man was put to death. In the Mosaic law, it was not an offense to harbor a fugitive slave who was abused. The Hammurabi law demanded the death penalty. If a slave was injured... The law of God gave freedom to the slave. The law of Hammurabi demanded a compensation for the master. Do, do you see the evil in there? In these laws, human life is cheap and property is highly valued. By the way, it is this type of thinking that we ourselves risk falling into if our society keeps on despising God and the word of God. We can easily revert back to this type of archaic thinking, especially when the Bible is taken away from, for instance, the schools or public places. So the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, instituted two things. First, retaliation is not one's personal business. It has to be done by the authorities after a thorough investigation. God told the Israelites as early as Deuteronomy 32-35 and Romans 12, Vengeance is mine. These words tell us that God will bring justice or that the government brings justice, not the individual. 
One was not allowed to take the law into his own hands, otherwise anarchy will follow. Second, if the person is found guilty, the punishment will fit the crime. No more, no less. And the protection of the guilty is an important part of the mosaic law. Now, let me, let me give you some examples as we're going to navigate through the law, beginning with chapter 19 up to the end. So this very point actually is seen in Deuteronomy 24, verse 6. See what it says. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. What does that mean? That is, if someone owes you money, you're not allowed to take from him his means of making a living. The millstones was his means to eat, to feed his family. That is the eye for an eye. The authorities will determine how much he is going to give you or when is he going to give you according to his means. That is really respecting men here. Now see verses 10 to 11 in the same chapter. When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. You see, the fact that one person owes someone else money, this victim that is, is not allowed to enter the house of the person who owes him money and take whatever he wants. He is to stand outside not get into the house. This protected the offender and the society from disorder and anarchy. And the law goes even further in protecting the offender and his family. Look at verse 12 to 13. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. What this verse tells us is that is, if you happen to have taken a pledge from a person, you keep it no longer than until the evening. One day only for the poor man had to work to provide. Yes, he owes the person money, but that doesn't give the right to the person over this person. Only the God... And the state, that is God and the state, determines this right. I love the way the verse ends. The Lord, your God, the Lord, your God. Here is the one who watches everything. These things matter a lot to him. Man matters a lot to him. And as we read on into our section, we come to another very revealing law, that of warfare. The whole uh, of Deuteronomy 20 is about warfare. What is uh, war, by the way, is a terrible thing. It's like the, the cutting loose of, of, of hell on earth. It brings out the worst in men. But there are times when war is necessary. There are times when we must protect ourselves. And because the Jewish people were to enter the land and face many battles, so some regulation were given to them. The first part of verse uh, 20 are encouraging words for the Israeli soldiers. As it was then, it is today that the Israeli army will most often find itself outnumbered uh, uh, by, by, by surrounding armies. And the soldiers needed to be very courageous to go to battle. And the Lord knew this. And see what he says. Look at verse 1 and 3. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. 
for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. This is such a beautiful law. We're going to conclude with this. You know, in verse 1, Moses speaks to the soldiers and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. Then the priests actually come and say to them in verse 3, do not let your heart, uh, you know, be, be, be that is uh, terrified. You know, do not tremble before them. This is how concerned God is even for the soldiers who went to battle. And what is truly beautiful in all of this is that the, the following verses, you know, that four military exemptions are given out. And I want to mention this to you. The first exemption was for the one who had just built the house and never lived in it. He was exempted from warfare. The second one was for those who have built a business like a vineyard and never took advantage. He didn't have to go to war. The third one was for the one who was betrothed or engaged to a woman, but who had not yet, he wasn't married yet. So he was actually forbidden to go to war. It would be too hard for the fiancé actually to handle. And the fourth one is about the faint-hearted. If you're afraid, do not go to war. This is a very humane law that is actually given, was given to the Israelites and even to us. When we read it, there are some principles here we can take and apply them to today. May the Lord richly bless you. Good night.